With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 144, Maya Menat. Today, we tell the story of a woman who gained great prestige in the Egyptian court. Maya, the wet nurse and tutor of young Tutankhamun, was a major figure in the king's life. She achieved status beyond many of her contemporaries. Maya's story is fascinating, a tale of care, honor, and divinity on earth. This episode comes to you on behalf of everybody who supports the show on Patreon. To write this story, I had to buy the official book describing the tomb of Maya. That was not cheap, and without my generous patrons, I could not have afforded the purchase. Thank the gods for business expenses, and thank you for your support. For you, we make offerings to Usair, Osiris, Anpu, Anubis, and Aset, Isis. May these great deities of the western horizon protect your souls and give you a blessed eternity. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the tale. The year was 1338 BCE, give or take. The king of Egypt was Neb Keperu Ra, Tutankhamun, the son of Ra, the living Horus. Tutankhamun was approximately 15 years old. He had survived childhood, the vulnerable years of infancy and growth. Now, he was becoming a man according to Egyptian ideals. In 2021, we know a lot more about Tutankhamun's childhood than we did just a few decades ago. Thanks to some major discoveries and research, we have more information about his upbringing than ever before. Today, I would like to meet one of the people responsible for his care. I'm not talking about his mother. Tutankhamun never refers to his birth mother. No, I am talking about the person who actually raised the king the one who fed him, educated him, and supported him in his early years. I'm talking about Maya. Maya was a member of the Egyptian court. She served Tutankhamun in an important personal role. Maya was the person who breastfed the baby Tutankhamun. She nourished him in his early years and educated him as he grew from infancy. Maya was the king's menat. Menat translates roughly as wet nurse and tutor. It is an ancient title going all the way back to the Old Kingdom, and it can mean different things in different contexts. At a basic level, a menat was a woman who cared for and educated young children. We usually hear about them in royal contexts, where they help raise the children of the palace. To be a menat was a prestigious job, worthy of respect. So Maya was a wet nurse and teacher for Tutankhamun. She helped raise and educate the boy. As a menat, Maya's first job was to feed and support the baby Tutankhamun. This might have been tricky. You see, the mummy of Tutankhamun reveals something specific about his mouth. The boy had a cleft palate. A cleft palate is a hole in the roof of the mouth, connecting with the nose. It may cause difficulty when breastfeeding, because the child cannot form a seal around the nipple. So Tutankhamun probably needed help to get enough milk. Maya, his wet nurse, had to provide that help. 
We can imagine that Maya spent many hours with the baby Tutankhamun. She would have to support him as he nursed, perhaps assisting him to get enough milk. This could be tricky, and Maya may have had to spend many hours feeding the young boy. Because of his cleft palate, Tutankhamun would have used extra energy when feeding, so this meant that he had to consume even more milk to replace the energy he was using. In other words, young Tutankhamun was probably a voracious feeder. There is always that one child who just won't stop suckling. Well, Tutankhamun might have been that for Maya. So baby Tutankhamun had extra needs when it came to feeding, to getting enough milk. Maya was in charge of that. This means that Maya was ultimately responsible for Tutankhamun's well-being. She ensured his survival during infancy. She guaranteed his growth and nourishment. That could have been difficult, but it paid splendid rewards. For her work, Maya enjoyed great prestige in Tutankhamun's court. She also developed a strong bond with the boy. A bond that comes across in her tomb. The tomb of Maya preserves several aspects of her career and relationship with the king. We get glimpses of her job and daily life, and we get a sense of how she supported Tutankhamun in his early years. From these images, it is possible to reconstruct some parts of her story. So, we have established the basic context. Now, let's explore the career of Maya. Maya cared for Tutankhamun during his infancy. She fed him, supported him, and educated him. Officially, this made her the Menat Nesut, the king's wet nurse and teacher. Pretty straightforward, you get the basic idea. But Maya added other elements to this title, phrases and epithets that emphasized her close relationship with the king. In her tomb, Maya called herself the Menat Nesut Shedet Chau Necher. This translates as, quote, the king's Menat, the one who nourished the flesh of the god. So Maya emphasized her role as a caregiver, the one who supported the pharaoh physically. She also called herself the Hesit Aat en Necher Nefer. This translates as, quote, great of praise of the good god. End quote. You can also translate Hesit as favorite. Either way, the idea is clear. Maya described herself as one whom the king adored, whom Tutankhamun praised, a person of great prestige and status. Basically, Maya lived at the center of royal society. She had a close relationship with the king, and she probably had influence with Tutankhamun as well. So her job gave her honor and influence in the court. In her tomb, Maya gives us a glimpse of her relationship with Tutankhamun. One scene near the entrance shows the lady seated together with the king. Maya sits on an elaborate chair, while Tutankhamun sits on her lap. The two face one another, and Maya wraps one arm around Tutankhamun's back, supporting him. This image comes straight from the parent and child playbook. An infant seated on an adult's knee is a classic image of ancient Egyptian caregiving. You will find statues and pictures of children sitting on the knees of men, women, and gods. So the symbolism is clear. Maya, the royal Menat, had a maternal relationship with the pharaoh. Even if she was not his birth mother, she was the one who filled that role. While Tutankhamun sits on her knee, Maya holds him close. She also reaches out, raising a hand before his face. Again, the gesture communicates intimacy. Holding up her hand, Maya is close to the pharaoh's mouth, close to his breath, and close to his speech. So the basic design of the scene, woman and child, hand before the face, communicates that close relationship. It emphasizes Maya's support and her privileged intimacy with the king. 
The scene has parent and child connotations, but Tutankhamun does not appear as a child. Instead, he is a youth with a mature body. Tutankhamun wears the clothes of a ruler. He has the blue crown and a golden cobra, the uraeus, on his forehead. Around his neck, the king wears a golden necklace, and a set of cobras wrap around his leg. In one hand, Tutankhamun holds an ankh, or life. Above him, a golden sun disk offers symbols of life, stability, and power. In other words, Tutankhamun sits like a child, but he appears as a full-fledged king. Maya, symbolically, supports the power of the pharaoh. The scene is damaged, and a big chunk of it is missing. But we do get a sense of the context. While Maya sits on her chair with Tutankhamun on her lap, a group of people gather behind her. At the back of Maya's chair, a group of men come before the king. There are six of these men, well-dressed, holding symbols of power, or heka. They seem to be courtiers, high-ranking members of the government and the palace. These men come to give honour to the king, and to Maya. Above the courtiers, a set of hieroglyphs convey the scene's purpose. The text is damaged, but most of it survives, so we can get the gist. Basically, the officials praise Tutankhamun, they give honour to the pharaoh, and they praise the ka, or spirit, of Maya herself. The caption goes as follows, quote, Welcome, Neb Keperu Ra, Tutankhamun. Welcome to your ka, in satisfaction, Khetep. May Ra give to you eternity, in said festivals, forever upon the king's throne before the sun god. You will become Ra, like his manifestation. For the ka, spirit, of the one who is praised by the good god, the king's menat, she who nourished the body of the god, Maya, the true of voice. End quote. This text is interesting. The courtiers say welcome to the king, or yutu, which sounds strange. Why would they welcome the king? Shouldn't it be the other way round? Well, there is an interesting idea. Alain Zifi, the lead excavator of this tomb, proposes that the image commemorates the time when Tutankhamun first became the king. This is an intriguing proposal. The image might communicate the idea of Tutankhamun's ascent to power, the days when courtiers came to give praise to the new ruler of Egypt. In other words, the courtiers might be saying welcome because they are greeting the new pharaoh upon his ascent to the throne. If that interpretation is accurate, then the image would add even more to Maya's status. The great lady supported Tutankhamun physically. Now, her tomb suggests that she supported his inheritance. In other words, the scene of Tutankhamun sitting on Maya's lap might communicate their relationship and the way that she supported his power. Basically, Maya could be associating herself with Tutankhamun's ascent. As he became the pharaoh, she supported him, literally and politically. It is an interesting idea. Maya was closer than anyone to the young pharaoh of Egypt. This gives us a sense of the prestige she may have held. When you put this in context, it is easy to imagine the lady had plenty of influence with the boy king. Maya had raised Tutankhamun, and he probably trusted her. Maya had nursed the boy, ensuring his survival. So, officially, she was the closest thing he had to a mother. Maya could embrace Tutankhamun as if he were her son. As a result, she could receive praise that was also given to the pharaoh. It is a subtle flex, but it's there. So Tutankhamun became the king, and Maya supported him. The royal Menat, the wet nurse and teacher, gave strength to Tutankhamun physically and politically. In her tomb, Maya, 
the Great of Praise, communicated her relationship with the king. And she emphasized her prestige, her influence at the court. It is a fascinating portrait. After the break, we dive deeper into the legacy of Maya, the menart of the king. We visit her tomb and its discovery, and we uncover some intriguing aspects of her story. You see, Maya was the physical caregiver of the king, which gave her prestige, but she also used religious ideas to convey her special role. The tomb and tale of Maya goes deeper than you may expect. That is chapter two, after the break. See you in a moment. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Chapter 2. The tale of Maya is now an essential part of 18th dynasty history. As scholars reconstruct the society and events of that period, every bit of information adds to the larger tale. Surprisingly, Maya's contribution is relatively recent. The tale of Maya was lost for more than 3,000 years. When the tomb of Tutankhamun came to light in 1922, There was no reference to Maya within. When historians began uncovering more tombs and records of this period, Maya remained unknown. In fact, her story only came to light in 1996, the year that archaeologists first opened her tomb. The tomb of Maya is located at Saqqara. This is the ancient necropolis west of Cairo, where some of the oldest monuments stand. Saqqara is home to dozens of splendid tombs from all periods of Egyptian history. At Saqqara, you will find monuments like the Step Pyramid and the Tomb of Horemheb, the Supreme General of Tutankhamun. So Maya's burial is in a prestigious suburb, prime real estate for the time. Archaeologists found the Tomb of Maya in November 1996. The structure is located at the base of a cliff, east of the Steppe Pyramid. Here, a small cluster of tombs contain the burials of prominent individuals from the late 18th dynasty. This mini-necropolis is a bit out of the way, but it is well worth the visit. In 1996, excavators located this tomb. The team was French, working alongside experts from the Supreme Council of Antiquities. These specialists worked hard to excavate, document, and conserve the tomb. Thanks to their efforts, we can now reconstruct the life and times of Maya. The archaeological team opened this tomb on Sunday the 24th of November, 1996. Coincidentally, this is the same day that Howard Carter and his team began opening the tomb of Tutankhamun. Carter's team started to clear the passageways of Tutankhamun's tomb on Friday, November 24th, 1922. Then, on Sunday the 26th, they entered the tomb itself. So, the tomb of Maya and the tomb of Tutankhamun share a birthday of sorts. Both tombs opened in the same month, nearly the same day, 74 years apart. It is a total coincidence but a delightful one. Now, Tutankhamun and Maya share an archaeological anniversary. Heb nefer to them both. Anyway, Maya's tomb is large. It covers two stories, or levels, and it has multiple rooms. Her tomb is a rock-cut monument. This means that it is dug into the side of a cliff, tunneling through the rock. The tomb has a couple of hallways, corridors, at the entrance. Then, it opens out into a wide, square room. 
This main hall is large enough that it needs four pillars to support the roof. So the tomb is quite substantial. It would have taken years to dig and decorate. That tells us something about Maya. Apparently, she could afford to hire builders and sculptors for a long period of time. Right away, the scale of the tomb gives a hint at her position in society. The tomb of Maya was not intact. After she died, later generations found the monument. They opened it, reused it, and even expanded it for their own burials. So the original tomb is damaged, Maya's mummy is lost, along with her burial goods. That is a shame. Maya's immortality is compromised, and scholars must reconstruct her story from scattered fragments. Fortunately, enough survives to reveal her career. And we can see some of her beliefs. As we round out this episode, let's take a look at Maya's religious imagery. It tells a fascinating tale. The walls of Maya's tomb show elaborate, beautiful scenes. We have already visited one, showing the lady with Tutankhamun, but there are others. In particular, we have scenes of Maya's religious beliefs, the way she presented herself, and what she hoped to achieve in eternity. One scene presents Maya's funeral. We see the lady, wrapped up as a mummy, standing before a group of mourners. Priests perform rituals for Maya's body. They open her mouth and present gifts of food, drink, and all good things for her nourishment. Above the mummy, hieroglyphs record the scene. They say, quote, An offering that the king gives, pure, pure for Osiris, who presides over the West. An offering consisting of all good things, being thousands of loaves, thousands of beer jugs, thousands of incense cakes, thousands of wine jugs, thousands of milk jugs, for the car of the king's menat, Maya, the true of voice. End quote. The priests give their offerings, but Maya's body is not alone. Behind her mummy, a figure of Anpu, Anubis, comes forth. Anubis embraces Maya and supports her as the priests make their offerings. The god even speaks himself on behalf of the lady. Anubis says, quote, Words spoken by Anpu, Anubis, the Emiwet. He says, My arms are in protection behind the Osiris, the king's menat, Maya, the true of voice. End quote. Anubis speaks on behalf of Maya. He embraces her, offering her security for eternity. He calls Maya the Osiris, which is another way of saying that she has achieved immortality. It is a classic funeral scene. Maya conveys her wish for a safe and satisfactory burial. The great lady hoped for an enduring afterlife, but she also gave prayers to the great gods. In her tomb, we see Maya making offerings to Osiris, king of the dead. She stands before a table piled high with offerings. Flowers, bread, vegetables, and poultry are ready for eating. So Maya brings all good things for the great god. The hieroglyphs record her speech before the deities. And to convey her tone more clearly, I thought we might hear from Maya herself. Maya? Maya, true of voice, she says... I have come to you, Osiris Swenefer, who awakes in health, the ruler of the West. I see you. I glorify your beauty. I exalt your majesty at the good moment. I accompany the good god, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Nebkeperura, the son of Ra, Tutankhamun, ruler of the southern Heliopolis, given life, our Horus whom you, Osiris, placed upon your throne. I acted in accordance with what he, the king, said. By the king's menat, Maya justified. Thank you, Maya. 
The great lady gave offerings to Osiris, lord of the west, king of the dead. She also proclaimed how she, the king's menad, had accompanied Tutankhamun in life. How she had supported him, had acted in accordance with his wishes. Maya had supported Horus, the pharaoh, so she had also served Horus's father, the great god Osiris. Basically, Maya tells the Lord of the Dead how she had assisted his son Horus on earth. She gave offerings to Osiris for his satisfaction and to show her piety. Again, a classic scene. But the details do give us hints at Maya's beliefs. Specifically, we see how she viewed her role in Tutankhamun's life. Having made offerings to Osiris, Maya continued to communicate aspects of her life and job. In another part of that scene, she gives a sense of her place in the religious world. As she makes offerings to Osiris, Maya reveals her priorities. Again, Maya will speak for herself. Quote, Words spoken by she who is greatly favoured of the good God. The king's menat who nourished the flesh of the god, Maya, true of voice. She says, I have come to you, my arms laden with all good things, consisting of bread, beer, cattle, and fowl, consisting of those things that you created yourself in order to appease the hearts of all the gods and to make their sanctuaries stable. I soothe your heart every day, just like your sister, Isis. End quote. I soothe your heart every day, just like your sister, Isis. That is noteworthy. Isis, or Aset, was a great mother deity. She had been around for centuries, but Isis really started to gain prominence in the New Kingdom. The idea of motherhood and the king as a son of the gods became more and more important through the 18th dynasty. By the time that Maya commissioned her tomb, this concept of Isis had become a powerful symbol indeed. Maya communicated her relationship with Tutankhamun in religious terms. In life, she had assisted the king, the Horus, on earth. She cared for him nourished him, and supported him. In that sense, Maya acted in the same way that Isis did for Horus. When Osiris died, the great mother cared for the infant Horus. Isis supported Horus until he was ready to claim his throne. In other words, Isis did for Horus what Maya did for Tutankhamun. Maya presents herself as a form of Isis on earth. She protects the king, nourishes him, and educates him. Eventually, it is her support that allows Tutankhamun to inherit his throne, to become Horus, the god on earth. Basically, Maya communicates a specific idea, an idea about her relationship to the king and her place in the world. In this scene, we get a sense how Maya viewed her place in Egypt's royal story. Maya was Isis, the one who protected the pharaoh. All of this is symbolic. Maya probably did not go around calling herself Isis. But in her tomb, in the art, she could emphasize her special bond with the king. And it is easy to see how this relationship, this symbolic role, added to her prestige. Maya was close with Tutankhamun. He trusted her. She reached out and touched his face. She offered praise and prayers. Maya was someone who cared. I guess you could say that Maya was the king's own personal Isis. The royal Menat, Maya enjoyed a privileged position in the life and court of Tutankhamun. On the walls of her tomb, 
we get a sense of her relationship with the pharaoh. We also see how she received honour from the highest officials of the land, and we get an idea that she acted as an Isis figure for the young monarch. As Tutankhamun's own mother seems anonymous, it may have been Maya that acted in that role. As a result, this lady enjoyed praise, high status, and an enduring legacy. Today, her story is coming to light once again. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was a little bit special. The voice of Maya was provided by Ancient Lyric, who also produced a lullaby song that opened the episode. Then, the Personal Isis song was an adaptation of Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. It was made by Luke Chaos, to whom I am very grateful. As noted earlier, the writing of this show was supported by all of my patrons. I must also give special gratitude to Linda, Terry, TJ, and Jason, my priest-level backers on Patreon. They keep the milk flowing into my cereal and coffee. They keep the fridge somewhat stocked with food, although I am late for grocery shopping this week. They keep me alive so that I can write these stories. Thank you kindly. That's all from me. On to the epilogues. Hello folks, welcome to the epilogue. Some extra detail for those who want it. This epilogue is long, much longer than it needs to be. Why? Well, as I researched this episode, there were many things that I wanted to talk about, but didn't have the time. It seemed a shame to waste that information, so I have packed it together in a special length discussion. I should note, this epilogue is possible entirely due to my subscribers on Patreon. Without their support, I could not have afforded the book describing Maya's tomb. So, this epilogue is a gift from everyone who joined. Thank you, all of you, from the bottom of my heart. I hope you, and everyone listening, enjoys these stories. The epilogue comes in two sections. First, we discuss a couple of interesting and important details from Maya's tomb. Then, we take a quick break and dive into the really detailed stuff. I realise that might be overwhelming. So, when you hear this sound... That is a good time to jump off. Otherwise, enjoy the tale. Throughout this episode, I have talked about Maya's career, her prominence, her relationship with the king, and her religious ideas. There is one thing, though, that I haven't discussed. You may be wondering, where did Maya come from? What were her origins? Well, this is a tricky question. The tomb of Maya is damaged, large chunks of the art are missing, and the parts that survive make no reference to Maya's hometown, her family, or her heritage. So the origins of this lady are a bit murky. That hasn't stopped historians from speculating. The gap in Maya's backstory has prompted some ideas. In particular, Professor Alan Zephy suggests that Maya could have a more prestigious background than we expect. Professor Zephy, who led the excavations on this tomb, has proposed that Maya is actually someone else. In his argument, this lady could be the Princess Merit Aten. Zephy proposes that Merit Aten, eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, became the wet nurse of Tutankhamun after her parents died. In this scenario, the princess briefly held power in the court, and when Tutankhamun grew up, she passed her authority to him. That is a really simple overview of Zephi's argument. If you are interested, there is a free article online that you can read. Link in the episode description. Personally, I don't agree with this hypothesis. In my view, the Tomb of Maya does not give us any information that would support such a reading. 
The monument is lavish, and Maya clearly had prestige and wealth. But nothing in the tomb itself suggests that Maya has a secret backstory that she is covering up. In my assessment, the lady is what she appears to be. A prominent woman who had a special place in Tutankhamun's court. So Zifi proposes that Maya is actually Merit Aten. It is an interesting idea, but I am not convinced. That might change with new evidence, but in 2021, Maya seems like a person with her own identity. In her tomb, Maya does not refer to any family or heritage. She does not reference her parents, any siblings, any partner, or any children. That might sound strange. Why would a person ignore their entire background in their eternal monument? Well, that is more common than you might expect. In the late 18th dynasty, many Egyptians ignored their origins when decorating their tombs. It seems to be a trend for prominent officials to downplay their backstory and emphasize their personal achievements. Also, powerful Egyptians seem to focus on their service and their relationship to the king. In many tombs, we find powerful people ignoring their heritage. Instead, they double down on the work they did for the pharaoh and how much the ruler appreciated them. This is a noticeable trend, and I suspect that Maya followed that trend when decorating her tomb. So, for me, Maya's backstory is standard. She may have ignored her background to focus on the things that gave her prominence and power. Her place in the court, her relationship with Tutankhamun. These things brought her influence. Maya, like many Egyptians of this period, focused on that in her monument. There is one small question that lingers. Maya was a wet nurse, meaning that she breastfed the young Tutankhamun. Now, conventional wisdom suggests that women can only breastfeed if they have or have had children. So, to be a wet nurse, Maya should have a child of her own. Where is it? There could be a couple reasons why Maya does not reference a child in her tomb. First, she may have focused on Tutankhamun because that affected her status. Second, the child might have appeared, but the decoration is now lost. Or third, Maya could have had a child who then died before she built this tomb. Child mortality was extremely high in the ancient world. It is entirely possible that Maya had a baby, became a wet nurse, and then lost her physical child. If that is the case, it might add to the personal bond that we see between her and Tutankhamun. That is speculation. What about the fourth option? Suppose Maya never had children. How would that work with her job? Well, this is a complicated topic, and I am not an expert. But I dug around in the scholarship for midwifery and lactation. What I found is curious. Apparently, women will naturally start to lactate when they give birth to a child. However, it is possible to stimulate lactation artificially. From what I have read, a woman can encourage the production of milk by rubbing or squeezing the breast. It does not happen immediately, you have to do it for weeks to start the process. But apparently, it is possible. So if Maya did not have a child of her own, that does not necessarily mean she could not be a wet nurse. There are all kinds of caveats for that, so let's file it under speculation. Again, this is not my area of expertise. If you are a specialist in this field, or interested in it, I have provided my references on the podcast website. If you have information to add, please send it my way. Finally, there is one detail from the tomb that I must talk about. It is a small part of Maya's decoration. It doesn't add anything to her career or her backstory, but it does add to her life and the symbolism of her tomb. A couple times in this episode, I discussed the scene where Maya sits with Tutankhamun. The lady sits on her chair, the king on her lap. Behind them, courtiers come to honour Tutankhamun, and Maya as well. 
That scene is lavish, but I left one detail out. You see, beneath Maya's chair, we find her dog. A female dog rests beneath the chair of Maya. She lies on her side, back paws resting on one another. Her front paws are flat on the ground, and she raises her nose to sniff the air. A collar fits around her neck, and there is a leash connecting to the chair. So, this seems to be a pet dog, sitting with Maya and the king. The dog is a Saluki. This is a breed that originally came from Mesopotamia. Saluki dogs are hunters, and the Egyptians bred them for centuries. By the time of King Tutankhamun, Saluki dogs appear as pets, and when hunting wild animals. So this dog was a popular breed. Apparently, Maya had one. As I said, the dog is female. We know that because the artist emphasised her teats. The dog has a prominent belly with three teats on display. And she lies slightly to her side, similar to how some dogs will lie when nursing puppies. So the dog is a female, and presented with maternal features. In other words, she is a complement to Maya, the one who nursed Tutankhamun. The dog does not have a name, but she is distinctive. It is easy to miss her when looking at this scene, but the dog is a lovely addition, one that gives a sense of the life behind these images, and one that relates to the symbolism of Maya's tomb, and specifically her job. The question is, did this dog belong to Maya or Tutankhamun? We don't know. There are no hieroglyphs to indicate either way, and perhaps it doesn't matter. Chances are, Tutankhamun saw this dog a lot in the years he spent with Maya. Certainly, this female Saluki lived in the palace. She was a royal doggo close to the king. In the words of a famous Twitter account, I give this one 13 out of 10. They're good dogs, Tut. That is part one of the epilogue. If you are satisfied with the story, this is a good place to depart. But if you want to dive deeper and explore the tomb of Maya to its limits, stick around. We are going into the darkness. The Lady Maya had a strong relationship with Tutankhamun. In many ways, she was a surrogate mother for the king. That maternal role goes a bit deeper. You see, Maya does not always call herself Maya. Sometimes her name changes. Throughout her tomb, we see the Lady Maya performing her duties. But occasionally, the hieroglyphs spell her name differently. Besides Maya, we also find the name Mutia. Mutia is a great name. It references Mut, the mother goddess, whose name literally means mother. So Maya, the surrogate mother for Tutankhamun, also had the name Mutia. That is an excellent overlap between identity and job. It is unclear whether Maya or Mutia is the original name. It is possible that this lady used to be called Mutia, but then changed her identity in the reign of Akhenaten. We have other examples of Egyptians changing their names in that time. Apparently, people altered their identities to suit the political climate of Akhenaten and his religion. Well, perhaps Mutia was one of those, and changed her name to Maya as a way around the problem. If that is the case, perhaps she used both names, Maya and Mutia, towards the end of her life. Tutankhamun probably knew her best as Maya, but as she prepared her tomb, the royal nurse added some references to her original identity. We can't be sure, but the name Mutia is definitely noteworthy. For one thing, Maya's status, her prominence, came from her role as a surrogate mother. So, having a name connected with Mut, the literal mother goddess, that is quite fitting in the circumstances. Perhaps Maya had an alternate identity, Mutia, a name only glimpsed in her tomb. It is a fascinating hint, a trace of her life and her mindset 
in the final years of her life. Beyond the name, other parts of this tomb offer titbits of information. First, we have a religious detail. In the scene of Maya sitting with Tutankhamun, the pair rest on their chair. Above them, we see a royal symbol. Tutankhamun and Maya sit beneath a sun disk. A circular symbol adorns the upper part of this scene. The disk is not Aten. It has no arms, no hands, and no cartouches. But the disk does act similarly to Aten. The sun disk carries symbols of royal power and life. On the left and right, we see cobras, uraei. Hanging off these cobras, the symbol of life, or ankh, is prominent. Then, on the bottom of the sun disk, we see additional hieroglyphs. Symbols of power, was, and eternity, jed, adorn the sun disk. So, the image of the sun rises over Maya and Tutankhamun, and it brings all good things for the pair. As I said, the sun disk is not Aten, at least not the Aten we are familiar with. This sun disk lacks the arms, hands, and cartouches, so it seems like the artists were reducing some of those features. This tells us something important. By the time Maya built her tomb, Egyptians were going back to older motifs and imagery. The idea of the sun disk, as Akhenaten had worshipped it, was receding. Fading into the background, the traditional images were returning. That's enough about the art. Let's finish up with some details on Maya's life. There are a couple more bits to discuss that flesh out her place in society. First up, let's talk about Maya's wealth. The lady had privileges in a social and economic sense. We get references to that in her tomb. As you enter Maya's tomb, you pass through a couple of hallways, leading to the main chambers. At the end of the second hallway, just on your right as you go through the door, the figure of a man appears on the wall. This man is bald, and he wears a full-length robe with heavy folds over the waist and legs. The man raises both hands, and he seems to be holding rattles or sistra. Chances are you wouldn't give this man a second glance, but he is noteworthy because of the job he did for Maya. This man was named Ra-Hotep, or pleasing to Ra. He worked for Maya in an important role. According to the hieroglyphs, Ra-Hotep was the, quote, Heri Shena en Menath Nesut, Shedet Necher Maya, Ma'a Heru. This translates as the chief of the storehouse, of the royal Menat, the one who nourished the god, Maya, the true of voice. End quote. Basically, Rahotep was in charge of a special type of workshop. The Shena was an economic institution. It could include warehouses, production facilities, and staff. Shena is a complicated term. Historians are still investigating. But long story short, Rahotep was the manager of a small organization that served Maya's needs. This Shena would have produced goods like food or luxury items on behalf of the lady. So Maya had resources. This might have been a gift from Tutankhamun. The Shena often has a connection with royal business. But at the moment, we don't have enough information. What we do know is that Maya's workshop was unique. Out of all the wet nurses and tutors that Egyptologists know about, Maya is the only one who had a Shena. That might change with new discoveries, but at the moment, it seems like Maya had a special position and a special amount of wealth. We get other references to people who worked on Maya's behalf. They are just names, but they give tiny bits of information. From the tomb, we find references to a person called Amos, the scribe of the dresser. Apparently, that person was involved with the royal wardrobe. Maybe they were the one who organised Maya's and Tutankhamun's clothing. Then we have Teti Nefer, the director of the administration. This seems to be a bureaucrat or a local official. 
Maybe Teti Nefer is one of Maya's relatives or colleagues. Third, we have another person called Armosa, who had the title Director of the Two Granaries. That position is quite important. It related to the harvest, the distribution of food, and the control of royal resources. So the director, Amos, was a prominent individual. He shows up for some reason in Maya's tomb. Finally, we have Cesar M. Kawef. This was a priest of Thoth in the city of Hermopolis. These references are a bit mysterious, but it seems like Maya enjoyed a wide-reaching network. She knew prominent people, and she had access to wealth and influence. Putting this together, we seem to have a rather prosperous lady. That would explain how she could afford such a large tomb. And with future research, we might get more clues to the economic and social groups that created this society. Maya offers glimpses of a sophisticated community. Hopefully, the future will tell us more. Either way, it's all quite exciting. Finally, there is one more aspect of Maya's job. We know that Maya was close with Tutankhamun. She was influential and enjoyed a high status. But the lady had another job besides her role as Menat. It is a small job. She only references it once in the surviving texts. But the job is curious, and it gives a hint at her life. When archaeologists cleared the tomb of Maya, they found a small object in the rubble. A piece of stone, broken, bore the name of Maya. The stone came from one of her canopic jars. Apparently, Maya's canopic jars were smashed a long time ago, but a piece survived. A piece with a text. According to this fragment, Maya was, quote, Menat Nesut Weret Chenaret. This means the king's Menat the Great Lady of the Chenret. Great Lady of the Chenret. What does that mean? Well, it is tricky. The Chenret literally translates as the secluded place, or the place of seclusion. Traditionally, historians have used the term harem, or harem. The harem refers to institutions in other societies where royal women lived and raised their children. Unfortunately, the term harem has picked up all sorts of associations and negative connotations. In the 21st century, historians are revisiting this word, and they are moving away from the harem translation. Personally, I agree with this. The term harem is loaded with other meanings, and it may not be appropriate to describe the Egyptian chenaret. Unfortunately, I have used the term harem previously in the podcast, but in 2021, I don't want to use that word anymore. So, Maya was the great lady of the Chenaret. How should we imagine this role? The word Chenaret originally means something like secret or forbidden. So, Maya was the great one of a secret or forbidden place. This is probably a reference to the royal apartments, the place where the king and his family lived personally. As you can imagine, the royal home would be as private or secret as it got, and it would make sense for Maya to spend a lot of time in Tutankhamun's apartments. As the king's menat, his caregiver and teacher, Maya would be close with Tutankhamun. She would need access to those secret spaces. There is an alternative translation. For some scholars, the term chenaret may refer to musicians. This would fit with the domestic interpretation. After all, music must have been an important part of entertainment and life in the palaces. So, being in charge of the musicians would be a prestigious role. Maya could very well have managed or even conducted performers in the palace. This is uncertain, but it is a possibility. So maybe Maya, the mother figure, was also a musician of sorts. Perhaps we can imagine her managing the performers and bringing music to the halls of her palace. As far as legacies go, that is a pretty good one. 
Maya lived and worked in the royal palace. But of course, her life did not last forever, and eventually the lady died. We do not know when Maya died exactly. It could have been before Tutankhamun passed away, or after. There are different interpretations between Egyptologists. Regardless of the date, we do have images of Maya's funeral and her memorial. On one wall of her tomb, in the second chamber, we see the lady seated on a chair. She sits in front of a table, piled high with offerings of bread, vegetables, meat, and drink. Also, two lines of people walk before her. These people are well-dressed, and they bring plates of offerings for the lady. On the top register, a group of young women, dressed in long robes, carry bundles of flowers and plates laden with food. Between them, a small calf, a young cow, comes forward, probably for sacrifice, to give meat to the soul of Maya. On the bottom register, a group of men come forth. They wear long kilts or high-quality robes. Again, they carry bundles of flowers and plates of food. It seems to be an offering for the memorial of Maya, a way to sustain her soul and spirit in the next life. Then, another scene shows the funeral itself. Again, in Chamber 2, we get an image of Maya being buried for eternity. The lady appears as a mummy. She stands tall, wrapped in a white shroud. An amulet in the shape of a heart hangs over her chest. She wears a mummy mask in the shape of a face with a long three-part wig hanging over her shoulders. So we see Maya after her death, when she has been embalmed and prepared for eternity. The scene shows the funeral itself, the moment in which the body would be laid in its tomb. The mummy of Maya stands in front of a table, piled with offerings, and a priest comes before the mummy, holding a wooden scepter. This scepter is an adze, a type of chisel or hoe. The priest is using it to open the mouth of the mummy. The opening of the mouth would allow Maya to speak, hear, see, breathe, and consume in the next world. It was a most important ritual, and the priest comes before Maya's body to perform it. Behind the priest, another group of men bring offerings, cuts of meat, long strips of linen, incense and packets of natron for preservation. The loveliest detail, though, is behind the mummy. Standing just behind Maya, we get a figure of Anpu, Anubis. He stands as a human male with the head of a jackal or wolf. Anubis wears a long wig, and a tail hangs down from his belt. He wraps his arms around Maya, embracing her, and he is ready to protect her on her eternal journey. So, we get an image of Maya's funeral, the day when her body was placed in the tomb, the rituals were performed, and her car was awakened for eternity. This scene completes the journey through Maya's burial. It shows us in the final moments of her story, when she was readying to pass to the next world. It is a lovely image. I'm glad it survives. This is the end of Maya's tale. Thank you for joining me on this extended epilogue. Special thanks must go to everyone who has subscribed to my Patreon. Every patron is a blessing, and thanks to their support, I could afford the research materials for this episode. I am honoured to receive their kindness. To every single person listening, patron or otherwise, thank you very much for joining the show. May Osiris bless your soul. May Isis nourish you. Hopefully, 
you will all enjoy a legacy as rich as Maya's. And now, one last prayer from Maya, generously provided by Ancient Lyric. From the walls of Maya's tomb. Quote, An offering that the king gives to Hathor, lady of the sycamore tree, mistress of the western necropolis. May she cause that a lamp is lit for you in the night, until Shu appears shining upon your chest, and may you be told, Welcome! For the Osiris, the king's menat, Maya, true of voice. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.